Welcome to the Unfiltered Podcast with me, Joe Warner, and powered by Ultimate Performance, the world's premier personal training experience that delivers maximum results in minimum time. In each episode of the Unfiltered Podcast, I interview the most respected, celebrated, and controversial experts in the fields of health, fitness, nutrition, well-being, and performance to help you find the life-changing advice you need to live smarter. Remember, you can find all of our exclusive unfiltered documentaries, video interviews, and investigations at unfilteronline.com and the Unfiltered Extra YouTube channel. And now, on with the show. I'd love to talk about the Elite Study that's been running now for 11, 12 years. Where do you think the most interesting breakthrough is going to be in terms of genetic component of athletic performance do you feel that we're close to that close to getting there or are we still some way off i mean it's fascinating to study people at the absolute uh, range of what is possible to, to think about the most extreme biology when we look around the world whether we're looking at the largest trees or the biggest whale in the ocean when we look at to humans what we're seeing is the extreme of the ability of, of a biological system to perform and in order to perform in order to move muscles and move a body in time and space you have to be able to deliver fuel, you have to be able to deliver it efficiently and at the absolute maximum velocity. And so all of the systems you can think of, your heart, your lungs, your blood, and the exercising muscles themselves, of course, have to be in absolute top condition. You can't really have a weak link in any of those systems. So the, the premise of the elite study is that if we find the people who are at the absolute limit of human performance, then all of those systems essentially have, have to work at a, at a very optimal level. And that we might find pretty likely, and what we're starting to find is that in one of those systems, they operate at a super maximal level, you know, almost superhuman level in order to take them to that elite status. It's a fascinating model to study just to learn about biology. But our aim really at the end is to be able to understand the most elite human performer so that we can help those who have disease and those whose systems are not working well. When you think about those with neuromuscular disease, whether the brain and the, the muscle connection isn't working, or those with a weak heart, those with chronic lung disease, uh, or people who are just frail, we can help all of those people by learning from the biology of the most elite in our society. One of the most interesting things that I've learned about the study so far are the different genetic components in different populations behind the elite performance. Is that something you were expecting or has been a complete surprise? And what does that mean when we're looking at not just elite sport and performance, but general health and disease prevention and all the other things you just mentioned? Yeah, I mean, global diversity is really what underlies the, the power of our study. And so it, tapping into that is really something that we've, we've really tried to do from the beginning. Um, but of course, these athletes are hard to find. And, and so there aren't very many of them out there. When you're looking at, initially, we were looking at 0.0001% of the population. We've, we've broadened that a little bit now, but we're still looking for, for rare specimens uh, wherever they are found. Um, I think the fact that humans like to compete is helpful. <laughs> and so, and many different countries from around the world compete, of course, in Olympics and other and other events where uh, they are testing themselves in a variety of ways against others. So tapping into that is really interesting. I think you asked if we were surprised. I think at some level, I'm never surprised by human diversity. Um, but I think that we've been surprised to the, the extent to which we've had kind of a concentration of certain groups in this very elite performance. And that's kind of a, a fascinating cultural question. You know, to what extent is that because in certain countries, certain sports predominate? Is it because certain sports happen at altitude and others do not? 
Is it because there's a cultural element to do with activity in, in daily living or just the fact that competition is something that is sort of fermented, if you like, uh, through youth uh, at times when people are, are changing physically and, and really testing each other. So the likelihood that the person who really is the fittest, fastest or strongest actually appears out of the group. So I think that we, you know, as part of the study, we, we celebrate diversity in every way and we try to maximize the power, statistical power of that diversity for the discovery of, of genetic findings that will help us help those with disease. The idea of personalized medicine based on, on genes and, and genomic sequencing has been around for a while. How close are we to it being a reality, to being rolled out? Because the cost has come down dramatically and made it affordable. But how close do you think we are to, to seeing it rolled out on, on a national or global level? Yeah, I, I mean, I think we're there. Uh, but we're just at the beginning. So it's not necessarily perceptible to everyone yet. You're right, the cost of, of sequencing human genome has come down dramatically. The Human Genome Project was that $3 billion <laughs> to sequence one. It wasn't even one, it was like half a genome. Uh, it took 10 countries 10 years to do that. And now, as, a, as in, in 2023, you can sequence a human genome for $100. And I often use this analogy of a Ferrari because there's something else that's pretty fast and pretty, um, and pretty expensive. You know, I used to drive past this one on, on, the, on the, the Ferrari garage that I, is just up the road. And certainly the $350,000 for that Ferrari is, is beyond my budget. But if that Ferrari dropped in price as much as human genome sequencing has now dropped in price, it would cost one cent. You know, so you're talking about $350,000 down to one cent. And, and the power of then that data is, is what becomes important. Because it's great that it's cheap. And sometimes it can be fast. Uh, but what can we do with it? And, and that's what personalized medicine really is. So the genome is having an effect daily on the lives of people with rare disease, rare genetic disease, people who have maybe struggled for years to get a diagnosis. They have a, a, a conglomeration of symptoms that don't, don't make sense. They don't fit into a box. There's no name. There's no label. And they go from doctor to doctor to doctor with no answer, sometimes for years. And in, in, the, in the U.S., at least, they accumulate you know, more and more uh, paperwork and, and higher and higher bills. Uh, and that's a tragedy. But what we have now within the genome is just an unbelievable tool that is now you know, just a few hundred dollars in order to, to potentially make a diagnosis in half those individuals. So at, as the first step along a road towards fully personalized medicine for everyone, the effect of the genome on rare disease has been just dramatic and is here today. So what are going to be the next obstacles? Now cost is out of the way. What are, what are the big obstacles that have got to be overcome? Yeah, so really important question. Quality is, is really important, and that's something we've been harping on about for the last decade. As, is there's no point having precision medicine if it, if it isn't also accurate medicine. And so we need to be able to know that if you sequence a particular gene, that the letters that you are reporting out of your sequencing pipeline really are truly correct. So that's been important. But actually, we've made enormous strides as a community uh, in, in the quality of genome sequencing over the last few years. Now we're able to sequence very long DNA molecules as well, which it's not obvious why that would be better. But if you think about assembling the genome, once you've sequenced it, you basically are breaking it up into sections. So if you think about a jigsaw with 10,000 pieces, that's, that's pretty hard to put together. If you think of one now with 10 pieces, you know, even I could do that. <laughs> and so long read sequencing is, is a new technology that's really helping us move uh, the quality and accuracy of, of genome sequencing to the next level. So then where does, it, where does it really start to affect regular individuals, if you like, everyone else, that, you know, the people who are fortunate 
not to have a rare disease. And I think that's what's really exciting just about the next few years. Personalized medicine is really going to come to the doorstep of, of almost everyone. And it'll come there in a, in a couple of different ways. The first is that we'll be able to use the genome to, to alter your risk of, of certain diseases. If, so if you were to the doctor and worried about maybe your risk uh, of having a heart attack, your doctor will say, well, do you smoke? Let's check if you're diabetic. We'll check your cholesterol. And then put that into a, basically a little engine that will pop out a score of your likelihood of having a heart attack. Hopefully it's low. But if it's above a certain threshold, you'll be prescribed a cholesterol-lowering medicine. At the moment, though, despite the fact we know that half of the risk is genetic, there's no genetic component to that at all. So we're essentially kind of ignoring half of the risk. And coming up shortly for as little as probably $30, because for this you don't need the entire genome covered very deeply, you just need it to cover a few times to really understand this part. You could get that information. So you get a kind of genome-enhanced risk score uh, that's going to be more accurate uh, and the decision about whether you take, for example, a cholesterol medicine or, or some other advice that you might get would, would depend on that much better score. And then the final way I think it'll come to affect everyone is something called pharmacogenomics. So the, at the moment, again, you go to your doctor, they're about, let's say you have high blood pressure. They're going to prescribe a medicine for high blood pressure, but you're on two or three medicines already. That system will check to make sure that the new medicine doesn't interfere with the old ones. Well, in the near term, the near future, that system will not just check your other medicines, but will actually check your genome and to make sure that that medicine that's about to be prescribed actually is compatible with and is the ideal medicine for your genome. And that, I think, is a world of personalized medicine that, that we've been thinking about for a while, but that is now finally on our doorstep. Is there a concern as we hurtle towards this new technology, which sounds like an, an entirely upside of creating a, a health divide between the people that can afford it and the people that can't afford it. How do we mitigate the obvious and widespread concerns about that kind of environment? Yeah, I mean, it's such an important question. Uh, and I mean, here in, in Silicon Valley, you know, we, people often think about this idea that the, the future is already here. It's just unequally divided. And it's, I think we're painfully aware that we live in a bit of a bubble where we have ready access to te technologies. And I think we have a responsibility then to push the envelope to show what is possible. But then equally, we have a responsibility to make sure that technology can get to as many people as it can help. I think the lower cost helps with that. First of all, we are talking now about a test that is cheaper than the commuter bike I read in, you know, I ride into to work here. It's cheaper in some cases than an x-ray. So I do think that will help democratize access to, to genome sequencing. But we have to go further. I mean, most of the genome studies that have been done to date have been done in people that look like me, you know, white men, basically. And, and we were talking just a few moments ago about global diversity. In order to do the medicine better, to do personalized medicine for everyone, no matter where in the globe you come from, we need uh, normal populations of people who look like the globe to be sequenced and to participate in studies where we learn what's normal for each of the populations. So, so that element of diversity is really important. Is that almost the biggest challenge? Is, is the, the, the research and the scope and the scale to be in a position where there's the same information available for other populations and not people that just look like you and yeah. I. No, I think that, that really is, I think, our biggest challenge. Um, and unfortunately, we're, we're, we're making inroads, finally. But I think over the course of the last 10 or 20 years, this has been really unevenly distributed. I mean, most of the people in those studies uh, you know, are white Northern European ancestry. Um, and we can learn so much more just from the diversity of the rest of the world. And having done that, then we'll, we'll be immediately in a position to do better in terms of democratizing the sort of clinical testing 
But then we also need to make sure the access is there and cost is part of that. Some of the technologies are much more mobile than before. We have sequencers now that are, you know, this kind of size, like a USB stick. Um, and sequencers that used to take up, you know, the size of this room, you know, are now sit on a desktop. So especially here, you know, in, in Silicon Valley, where we were often comparing the change in sequencing to the change in computer processing power. And in fact, sequencing has, has gone ahead faster than the changes in computer processing power. Uh, which just is really a challenge to us to say, how much good can you do with this technology in the world? Because I guess you also need to take the time to appraise what you're finding. If the technology is moving or the, the, the software is so quick now, you don't want to miss anything. Is that a legitimate concern? No, it definitely is. I mean, we've been working in the last year here at Stanford on, on an approach to how fast can we sequence the genome? Because for many individuals, having a cheap and quality genome is important. And if you've maybe been waiting five years for an answer, then another couple of weeks isn't going to make a big difference. But if you've just been admitted to an intensive care unit, let's say you're a little baby with a, a devastating disease and you, you get airlifted into our hospital, you don't have two weeks. You, you don't, might not even have hours and you, you certainly don't need to wait two days for an answer if you can have an answer sooner. We know that in those kind of situations, possibly maybe half the time, the answer is genetic. So you don't want to be waiting even two weeks. So we've been working on a, a method of essentially sequencing as fast as anyone ever has. And, and we, we now can sequence a genome in about five hours. So we've gone from essentially $3 billion to $100, but we've also gone from 10 years uh, down to five hours. And we'd like to be able to push that even a little faster. One of the other big concerns around the area, around this area, is, is the ethical concerns around insurance and preferential treatment, other concerns around this. How do, again, how do we stop this becoming a problem when we're talking about vast amounts of personal data? And I would want to have complete ownership of that and not let that information sway how I'm treated by businesses, by governments, by anyone. Is that a, an impossible pipe dream or is there a way that we can ensure that patient safety and, and data protection is at the center of all of this? Yeah, it's it's a really important question, and I think it, it's absolutely achievable. Uh, I mean, I think there, there's good examples. Nothing is perfect, but there's good examples from the worlds of banking, from finance, from the military, where we really are able to keep information private and secure. Uh, well, and the thing that's different maybe about health is in the hands of the people who it belongs to. And I think that many of us really have believed for some time that the answer to many of these challenges is to make sure the data is held by and stored by uh, the people whom it, in, to whom it belongs. And that was a, a, definitely a pipe dream in the days when we were holding a BlackBerry or a flip phone. Uh, but when we hold essentially a supercomputer in our pocket, and there are six billion digital devices in the world, and even in developing countries, many of those phones are, are the equivalent of supercomputers just from five or 10 years ago. And so when we have a world with that, with that much compute, then it's no longer uh, essentially a, a fiction to be able to say that people could hold the entire genome on their device and share it with whoever they wanted. Now, of course, it doesn't have to happen through a device in your hand if it's in the cloud and operated securely and there are secure tokens that you control, uh, then I think it's absolutely possible to keep that information private. Um, and, 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 but it should also be portable because if you're on vacation somewhere and you need to go into a hospital and your genome is relevant for what the treatment you might receive, you want the people in that rural hospital in whatever continent you're in to be able to access the information they want. So maybe that's an argument for having it on your phone. 
but it's certainly an argument for a kind of global information flow. Uh, part of having information secure is also having it moved securely to where you need it to be. And so we're, we have been thinking and, and trying to create solutions for, for each of those issues, and they're, they're definitely related. A couple of the key takeaways from your book centered around patient education and understanding and also greater collaboration between researchers, clinicians, and, and patients. Why is that so important to you? Why, why do you think that collaboration and education are almost the centerpiece of, of, of how this technology is going to revolutionize the world? Yeah, and I think part of it is just what you said yourself. It, it's moved so quickly that people, most doctors now, were trained in an era when the genome wasn't something that was readily available. Just by definition, it, it happened really quickly over the last five or 10 years. So education, of course, the, the young people who are coming through medical school and coming through nursing school and um, genetic counseling school, that's really important. Um, but equally, we have to not forget those people who might feel a bit left behind by the genome revolution, the, the sort of mid-level and senior uh, health professionals who might not be that comfortable with, with the, thinking about the genome at all or thinking that maybe there was a department of genetics that was in the small number of cases that you know, they could refer to. But now it's suddenly at, at their doorstep and it's in their clinic. They might be a primary care doctor. And, and we're now talking about these scores, like we mentioned, the polygenic risk score that can really enhance what they're doing on a daily basis. So education, really important part of that. And I think, again, probably reflecting the same thing, that speed of movement. It's, it's really fun and, and fascinating to, to be in a, a room where we're doing something maybe for the first time and where we've lined up the people who are really the scientists who helped develop it, like a new algorithm, a new computer method of, of, of finding a particular variant in the genome. We're not going to be able to just throw that immediately over the wall to the clinical side. We're going to need the people who developed it in the room with the clinicians and with the computer scientists. And so, you know, as, as a self-described geek, you know, from a young age, happens also to be a doctor. I mean, those meetings are amazing. Just the chance to sit in a room and listen to the best people in, in each of those domains, the people who really understand the sequencing technology, the people who have studied computer science and do data for a living, but then also the bedside team are all there basically looking at the data together, trying to, to make a decision. And that's a new way of doing medicine. That, that wasn't something that I was expecting or taught to expect when I was in medical school. But it's, it's an incredibly exciting way to do medicine because I think we can bring solutions and answers to people who were not able to have them before. Finally, if we're going to look to the future, 5, 10, 15, 20 years time, what's your ide idyllic view of, of how all of this technology is implemented? What does the world look like in 30 years time in your dream scenario? Well, maybe even sooner, but maybe like 10. Right, wow, okay. <laughs> but I think, well, yeah. So, so one of the things is that, first of all, a genome for anyone who wants it anywhere, regardless of your ability to pay. That, that has to be number one. Um, and then a secure environment that sits in the background, and it needs to be seamless. It, it shouldn't be data and computers and artificial intelligence shouldn't get in between the doctor and the patient. If to sit in the background and get out of the way to be able to allow the human connection between the doctor and the patient to be even enhanced. So then these genomes are there, but they're in the background, seamlessly connected, secure, and, and, and able to make connections uh, for, so that um, inference can be drawn. Uh, one of the things that happens a lot, someone with a rare disease is fine to have a variant in a given gene, but you can't make the diagnosis yet because they're the first person who's ever had that combination. But what often happens is someone in another part of the world has also presented with similar findings and that, a variant in a similar gene at the moment. 
there's lots of examples, including in the book that you mentioned, where people, you know, someone bumps into each, someone else at lunchtime, talks, gets talking, and then they realize that, that, that they have, you know, two patients with the same condition. That shouldn't be left to chance. <laughs> so this, this repository of genomes securely held can be te- tested in the background and diagnosis can be made automatically. So I think that's, that's one part of the future that's very exciting for personalized medicine and genomic medicine. The other part is that increasingly digital devices are a part of our lives and they should also be in the background. But the ability to monitor, for example, your heart through a smartwatch uh, is, is pretty new. And there's no reason why that shouldn't live in its own world. Uh, it's, it helps our athletes. It helps our heart failure patients. Uh, and we can monitor for cardiac rhythms that could be you know, very important to find in advance of, let's say, the stroke that they might cause. And we can then do preventive care. So I see this world, and maybe, yeah, like I say, it might only be 10 years away, where anyone who wants a genome can have it. And where people, again, it would be their choice, can use digital devices that connect to their genome, that understand the risks of you know, which diseases they're most at risk for, tune the computer methods of their watch, for example, to pick up early Parkinson's disease or to pick up atrial fibrillation, that rhythm I was just referring to, and that that, that data information flow is, is, is pretty seamless. And, and what that leads us to, I hope, is a, is, a, is a moment where we get ahead of disease. We essentially can let people know in advance what they're at risk of, allow them to make the appropriate behavioral choices to try and maximize the chance of avoiding it, maybe get preventive therapy, and, but allow us to be sort of really just proactive in getting ahead of disease. I, I think that it, it's, it's a sort of futuristic world, but I don't think it's as far away as we might have thought. And how optimistic are you that it's going to be the best case scenario and all the things you hope for are going to be realized without any of the potential negative effects? I'm an optimist by, <laughs> nat- by nature, as you might gather. Um, and I think, uh, you know, but we, we, we have to be aware of, of the downsides and we have to be thinking about them at every step. I think if we do that, if we, we can also get ahead of those, then I think there's a very good chance we get all that benefit with very little of the downside. Uh, but we need to be wary and, and ready to, to, to look at both those elements in order uh, for success to occur. When it comes to the amount of, of data that an individual is going to be potentially sharing, we want to do that securely. We want to protect an individual's data. What are some of the downsides of us not being on top of this problem, not having a firm grip of it? What kind of scenarios might we be encountering? Yeah, I mean, it's really important to consider that. And certainly um, in the US, one of the things that we are concerned about is the fact that people have to qualify for health insurance, people have to qualify for life insurance. And of course, there's a long form to be filled in. And uh, ultimately, you're asking a company to give you a product that you pay for. So to an extent, they get to decide who gets it. So one of the potential downsides is that information that is stored somewhere securely about you, even if it's, even it's perfectly secure, you could be asked to provide that information and perhaps it shows, uh, and one example might be that your genome has revealed that you have an early risk of of Alzheimer's disease and that might have significant implications for your life insurance or your health insurance policy. Now, thankfully in in the US, we actually have some protection for that through something called the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. There are equivalents in many countries around the world, but it's not absolute. And it has some, some holes that other uh, states in the US have managed to fill. Um, provides a good example of if, the, if this kind of data gets in the wrong hands, it can be used for nefarious purposes. Um, now, I think we, we should be um, very attentive to securely storing the data. But that's an example where you can be asked to provide it 
Uh, essentially, uh, um, if you have a, a genetic predisposition to a disease, you could be asked to reveal that and then potentially not have access to health insurance or life insurance. Um, the Genetic Information Non-Disclosure Act prevents that for health insurance and for employers. Employers, They're not allowed to ask. But the life insurance industry built a, an exception. So the life insurance industry actually is allowed to ask about a genetic predisposition. At the moment, they do not. But you could also imagine a situation where they might use it as a, as a discount, you know, reveal some genetic element that you've discovered about yourself and we'll give you a discount. And that, I think, is a slippery slope to somewhere that we really don't want to go. It sounds like more than half the battle is, as you said, trying to anticipate potential problems before you get to the point where they are a problem. But obviously, there's always going to be a situation where you can't anticipate everything. Ultimately, where is responsibility going to lie for those unforeseen problems? Uh, how we, how, you know, how essential is it that those are fixed quickly, and, and how do we coordinate a response to make sure that we don't go down some of the routes you just mentioned? Yeah, I think um, it's really about being aware, uh, and I think this is a challenge not just for genome technology; it's really a problem for any new technology. The regulatory agencies just can't move that quickly. They're usually underfunded. They usually don't have enough people. Um, and it's just too much to ask them to move at the same pace as an Apple or a Google or the companies with all the money in the world to push technology ahead. So then I think it's, it's down to society because I don't think we can rely on the regulatory bodies to, to do that. They're just not well-funded enough. So then we as, as members of society and as part of the community Need to need to ask you know and ask the hard questions and need to make sure that people in in ivory towers you know as well as people in industry are working together to provide clear guidelines for rolling out technology you know and gene editing is a good example of that where things you know appear to have gone a bit too far uh, the gene edited babies story that that was really in the headlines for some time was an example where the whole world kind of recoiled when they realized that the, that technology had been moved in one country forward into uh, human gene editing before we really felt that we were ready. And it's a good example of the fact that technology is hard to keep in a box, but unless we keep really far ahead and, and be really proactive in providing guidelines and making sure there's consensus internationally, then we may run into some challenges. I guess that's another potential risk is, is a rogue element, a rogue lab, a rogue whoever doing something that damages the entire field beyond repair. Is that something that keeps you awake at night? It, I mean, it absolutely does. And I think that was one example. I mean, it, it, I think the world moved very quickly to condemn that and to think about what we needed to do instead and where we needed to put the guardrails around. But, but we, you know, we were watching that area carefully. And as you said, you, you, can't, you can't prevent every rogue scientist or any rogue individual somewhere doing something that, that appears to be too fast, too early and potentially dangerous. The hope is that it doesn't hold the field back. Uh, and, and as long as there's a strong community response, I think people will feel that uh, they can trust scientists, they can trust doctors to, to do the right thing and, and only bring these technologies to the fore when they're really ready.